Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 399, Into the Wild. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Poppy, Louise, and Heather for signing up already. 1067 was a time of incredible change within England. Fortresses were being constructed everywhere. Existing fortresses were being seized and then manned by foreign mercenaries. Estates and farms in the surrounding areas were also being seized and being handed over to many of these same foreigners. If you were English, chances are that you either now had or very soon would have a new landlord who didn't speak your language, didn't share your culture, and didn't much appreciate either of them. In fact, from what we've seen from this new French ruling class so far, it's highly likely that your new landlord considered you inherently threatening. And if he felt sufficiently threatened by your general existence, he also felt that you deserved whatever violence you suffered in his attempts to calm his own fears. And Poitiers gives us a sense of how bad this was. Because, as I mentioned last episode, he suddenly says out of nowhere that women were safe from rape within England, and that all the Normans were instructed to behave honorably in their newly conquered lands. And this is Poitiers, a guy who was writing with a heavy bias and tended to try and refute or outright ignore much of what the contemporary records had to say about what was going on. So when Poitiers drops one of these non-sequiturs about things that the Normans were definitely not doing... That's our sign to go and check the other records to see what's up. And it turns out, these records have quite a bit to say on the matter of how Norman men were treating the English women. Here's Orderic. Quote, Young women of high rank were subject to the insults of grooms and mourned their dishonor by filthy ruffians. Matrons, distinguished by their birth and elegance, lamented in solitude and bereaved of their husbands and deprived of the consolation of friends, preferred death to life. Ignorant upstarts driven almost mad by their sudden elevation wondered how they arrived at such a pitch of power and thought they might do whatever they liked, end quote. In letters to Lanfranc, we learn that English women attempted to find refuge in nunneries, quote, not for love of the religious life, but from fear of the French, end quote. Far from the honorable and safe existence that Poitiers assures us was being provided by William and his knights. Instead, we're being told that once the Normans were given more power, they were emboldened and treated the public even worse. And because women were already denied equal standing in English society, they were particularly vulnerable to any vicious instincts on the part of the Normans. And these unequal practices weren't just a problem for individual women. They actually came back to bite the entire kingdom, as the invaders were able to utilize these already existing structures to oppress women in England as a vehicle to further oppress the English in general. And one of the major pressure points they used to do this was how property rights were handled with respect to women. 
specifically how few property rights women had, and yet how much land was falling into their hands due to the casualties that resulted from Hastings and the systematic genocide that was occurring in the South. So this unequal structure meant that if you managed to avoid violent exploitation in the streets, the chances were still very high that if you were a woman or a girl of marriageable age, you'd still find yourself exploited in your own home. Because marriage to an heiress was one of the easiest ways for these new Norman masters to acquire land. The seizure of women through marriage enabled the Normans to legally seize lands. And if you were one of those unfortunate young women, and whether or not you wanted to be married to an illiterate horse guy with a reversed mullet was irrelevant. You were going to do what you were told. And what you were told would have likely come from your father, if he was still living, or another male on your line who survived this period. And that guy was almost certainly taking his orders from his new reversed mullet lord. And even if you didn't have a new Norman landlord, even if your local lord somehow remained in control of his properties, your lands were probably still crawling with a fresh stack of Norman wannabe nobles who were looking for marriageable maidens, or someone to keep them entertained for a bit. So you weren't out of the woods yet. Furthermore, keeping your old English landlord wasn't exactly an improvement. If you still had an English lord, it was probably because the guy paid an enormous fee to keep the job. What was going on here was a bit like having a foreign government come in and charge you for the price of your house just for the right to keep paying off your mortgage. And these fees were brutal. If you remember the fees levied against Abbott Brand, the penalty amounted to 120 years of wages for an average person. And Abbott Brand wasn't the only one being hit with massive fees. Now, granted, others weren't hit quite as hard as Brand. His seems to be genuinely exceptional. But we're still looking at eye-watering fees that would eliminate years and years worth of income. But, of course, the landholders were highly unlikely to pay those fees all by themselves. That's why you have peasants. And just like with gender-based oppression... The class-based structures of oppression, which have previously served a handful of English elites, were easily turned to the benefit of a handful of Norman elites. Which meant, as an average English person, you were expected to find a way to pay the excessive fees. You know, with your own meager possessions and food stores. Effectively, you were being taxed because it was your responsibility to insulate your local aristocrat from the consequences of his own failures of leadership. I know, it's super hard to imagine. Now, these charges appear to have been clustered in East Anglia and Wessex, which suggests that these regions were the ones most under Norman control. You're only going to demand that kind of money from the people that you're pretty sure will have to listen to you. But conversely, this also suggests that large parts of England were not under Norman control, at least not to the same degree. Though, that was probably cold comfort to the English who were under the grip of the Normans, because their fees were real and backbreaking. But, if your lord wasn't able to gather enough resources to pay the Norman fee, he might sometimes have had another option. 
There are records from this period of landholders taking loans from their local abbeys to pay the fees to the king. And there are also records of abbeys foreclosing on those lords who were unable to repay them and then seeking William's confirmation for their brand new lands that they just got. So yeah, despite the Council of Nicaea specifically banning usury, and despite that whole bit in the Bible where Jesus whipped the money changers, there were abbeys who were quickly getting into the payday loan business. So the hits were coming from all directions. And if you were English in 1067, your head must have been spinning, quite possibly because some knight lopped it off for laughs. But even if you successfully dodged the church-sanctioned killers and their ponies, the chaos of this period must have been overwhelming. It was also confusing. Because amidst all the violence and theft, the new king, all freshly oiled from his coronation, was still insisting that his rule was a continuation of the line of King Edward the Confessor, and that his conquest was not a conquest at all. In fact, it was sanctioned both by God and by the English aristocracy. That's what he was saying. But the records of early 1067 suggest that people weren't buying it. I mean, we do see the submissions of Edwin, Morcar, and their thanes, but we also see William taking them hostage shortly thereafter, which gives the sense that this submission wasn't as enthusiastic as William felt he deserved. And Orderic adds that William also accepted the submissions of Kopsig, the disgraced noble who was Tostig's right-hand man and had gotten himself exiled at least once as a result, as well as Thorkel, who might have been a landholder from Warwick, Seward and Eldred, the sons of Athelgar, and finally, they were joined by a guy whose claim to fame was that he was the nephew of Edric f***ing Strayona. That's the grand total of the listed submissions in early 1067. In a kingdom that even the Norman scribes admit was resentful and rebellious. And here we see the only real names of note being either linked to disgrace or having been taken hostage shortly after their submission because of how little stock William placed in them. Hardly the broad acclamation of the right to rule that the previous kings of England had enjoyed. And as for the continuity of English governance, well, I'm sure that William would have pointed out that he kept on some English officers in his court, and that as such, his rule was a continuation of King Edward's. And while it is true that he did keep on some English officers, the House of Godwin had been running the show for decades at this point. And that was before Harold got crowned. And Harold himself had worn the crown for nearly a year. So it wasn't really Edward's officers that William was keeping. Not really. At best, they were Harold's. And even that statement requires a ton of caveats. Because remember, anyone who bore even the merest hint of resistance had been packed up and shipped to Normandy as hostages. Hell, based on what Poitiers had to say, it sounds like you didn't even need to look like you were disgruntled. You just needed to be popular in English, and that alone was enough to earn you a ticket to Normandy. And as I mentioned last week, there were plenty of reasons why the English would have been culturally opposed to William's reign as king. The regicide, the bastardy, the lack of any involvement of the Witan, not to mention the fact that he was, you know, not English. 
And apparently there were so many potential rebels among the aristocracy that Poitiers just gives up trying to list them all and just tells us that there were a lot of them. Yeah, I bet there were. And as a result, I suspect that any English thanes or officers who stayed behind, you know, the ones that William would have pointed to and said, this is part of my continuity. Well, they were likely to be the loudest and most enthusiastic supporters of this new Norman aristocracy. And don't forget the purpose of these officers. The officers weren't out there to get kittens out of trees or help little old ladies cross the street. These were tax collectors, sheriffs, and law enforcement. The Normans didn't know the lay of the land yet. They didn't know who owned what. They didn't know where people might meet in secret. They didn't know who might harbor a secret allegiance to the old dynasties. But these English officers did. Which means that oftentimes, it would have been Englishmen gathering these new taxes and fees and penalties. And it would have been Englishmen who were out there doing much of the enforcements of the Norman king's writs. And they were Englishmen who owed their position of power solely to the fact that they were absolutely on the good side of the Normans. Consequently, in those early few months, I wouldn't be surprised if the most vicious law enforcement came from those English sheriffs, as well as other English officers who were looking to further impress their Norman bosses. NWA had a few things to say about this dynamic back in the day. And making this entire situation even more dangerous was the likely fact that England at this point didn't have an extensive record of precise land boundaries. If land documents detailing exactly who owned what and where the land boundaries lay for all the properties throughout the kingdom, those documents haven't survived. And it's highly likely that those boundaries were just set in local knowledge. If you lived in this time, you would likely know the boundaries of the local lands as well as you knew the side of your own feet. And the arrangement of Old English life simply didn't require extensive documentation of property maps. Before the conquest, Old English life was broken up into manageable pieces. So you'd have a hide of land, which was enough land to support a family, and those hides would then be organized into groups of 10, which I've seen referred to as a tithing, you know, for easier management. And then they put 10 tithings into a larger group that they called a hundred, you know, naturally, because it had a hundred hides in it. And then you'd group a certain number of hundreds into a shire. And at every level, you'd find differing responsibilities, as well as differing officials to handle local matters and disputes. So for example, the hundreds would have the hundred courts, which would handle legal matters that didn't rise to the level of needing an earl or a king to preside. But the local levels also had their own form of administration as well, to deal with things that didn't rise to the level of needing to go to the hundred courts. So I wouldn't be surprised if detailed deeds simply weren't necessary and didn't exist. Because if there was a dispute on where the boundaries lay, that could be left to the tithing. And your neighbors would be all, come on, Unferth. Everybody knows that your property goes as far as that creepy apple tree at the end of the hedge that goes along the creek. But now, England was being forced into Norman feudalism. And while the English system had allowed a lot of matters to be handled locally, in this system, justice and administration went top-down. And central to that entire system was the sheriff. 
This position, as it previously existed in England, was largely for the purpose of tax collection and general legal administration. Basically, they were a civil servant who was subject to the local elderman or earl, and if they ever got particularly unpopular, they could be fired and replaced. But now, in the Norman system, the sheriff position came to resemble more of a vicomte. Each shire was responsible to have one, and they served at the pleasure of the crown, not their local elderman. And they were responsible for a lot. Finances, administration, law enforcement, and even judicial matters. The sheriff was essentially your main point of contact with royal authority. Now, obviously, the Normans would prefer to staff these particular job openings with their own people. But in the early months of Norman rule, the sheriffs and other functionaries were best filled by the English who knew the lands and the people. Well, so long as those Reeves also supported Norman rule. So these guys were incredibly powerful in a time of enormous uncertainty. And unless there's a whole treasure trove of documents detailing land boundaries and ownership that was lost without any trace whatsoever, this was also a time when a culture of neighborly trust and adjudication was running headfirst into the Norman culture of, if you wanted legal rights, you should have found a nerd to write it down. So my guess is that as the new Norman aristocrats sought to snag bits of land, and as there was a feeding frenzy for the lands that had once been held by the nobles who fell at Hastings, well, if they happened to also seize your lands and claim that actually the boundary didn't stop at that apple tree by the hedge, well, the word of your local tithing or hundred court probably wasn't going to cut it. At best, it would be this sheriff who might be able to issue a ruling over whether or not you really did own that hill over there. But considering that these guys owed their position to Norman approval, I wouldn't hold your breath. Now, this isn't to say that the Normans were trying to be even-handed and benevolent rulers while those naughty English sheriffs were oppressing their own people against their wishes. As bad as the sheriffs were, Orderick makes it quite clear that the Normans, under command of Bishop Odo and Fitzosborne, were accelerating the brutality that was already occurring in England. Orderick tells us that the two men were petty lords, quote, swollen with pride, end quote, and were absolutely having a ball oppressing any and all Englishmen, noble and common alike. This record suggests that these guys had essentially been tasked with leading an occupying police force. And so they went about suppressing the lands that they already had while also pushing farther north. And Orderick makes it quite clear that the Bishop and Fitzosborne were ruthless. And that ruthlessness was matched by the men that they were sending into the towns and villages to enforce the new Norman rule who Orderick describes as thieving and raping their way through the kingdom. William had sworn oaths to be a good and just king and to rule in the manner of the best of his predecessors. And here his new subjects were experiencing widespread robbery and assault in his name. The unfortunate English did what they thought they could. They brought their complaints to William's regents, Bishop Odo, and Fitzosborne, and they desperately sought protection from the crown. But the English were basically asking the cops to investigate themselves. 
And predictably, Orderic tells us that Bishop Odo and Fitzosborne, quote, screened their men at arms, end quote, meaning the complaints were ignored and the crimes continued. So, as with much of what was going on during this period, the crown was saying one thing, that William was King Edward's direct successor, that he would be just, and that there was a continuity of English rule. But it was doing something very different. It was imposing Norman rule and using English hostages, brutality, and collaborators to get it done. If you were an average English person in 1067, you would probably never see the king, nor even one of his new Norman earls that he appointed. But you would have been feeling the impact of this king nonetheless. And even if you were the luckiest English person, and you lived through all this without getting assaulted or robbed, you were probably dealing with some serious anxiety just due to the cascade of extraction and violence that would have been reaching through all levels of society. But would you dare to speak ill of the current regime or kindly of King Harold? Would you dare to openly worry about who your daughter had just been forced to marry or rage about what had just happened to your sister? Would you dare to complain even quietly among your own neighbors? Probably not, because this is where authoritarian overthrows often find success. In collaborators. Because what if someone was looking to gain favor with a new Norman master? And they repeated your words. Could you risk something like that? No. So you'd probably stay silent. And this might be why Poitiers writes of how England fell into a period of sullen rebellion but there were some people taking the risk. Remember when I mentioned that as the taxes and land seizures were being carried out, some people were gathering up what they could carry, including weapons, and disappearing into the woods? Well, those folks had a few thoughts on what could be done about these Normans, and it wasn't sulking or snitching. William may have been paranoid, but he was also right. A few of those nobles who submitted to his authority appeared to have their fingers crossed, including, it turns out, that nephew of Edric Strayona. His name, like his uncle, was Edric, though he had earned a number of nicknames that were quite different from his uncle. Edric Sylvaticus, Edric Chilled, Edric Forrester, and Edric the Wild. Now, precisely who this Edric the Wild was is a huge debate. Orderic is the one who gives us the links to good old Edric Strayona. And then John of Worcester adds to Orderic's lineage, writing that Edric the Wild was the son of Elfric, the brother of Edric Strayona. However, John of Worcester is the only source for this. And there's actually no record of Strayona ever having a brother named Elfric. So was Edric the Wild the son of a different brother? Was he descended from a cousin of Strayona? Were they related at all? It's hard to say. And this whole thing is made even worse by the fact that Edric was basically the Chris of its day. Every third dude was named Edric, which is partially the reason for all these nicknames. It's so bad, in fact, that the problem continues to this day for poor historians. And when we find a record of an Edric, we often don't know which Edric it was unless they included a nickname. But based on what we can be sure of, 
it's unlikely that Edric the Wild was making up his dynastic link out of whole cloth, because he does seem to have some level of an aristocratic background, and when the conquest took place, he was a wealthy landowner in Shropshire and Herefordshire. So he was, as John claims, a very powerful thane. And Professor Anne Williams, who's a particular expert in this area, theorizes that Edric wasn't just a powerful thane and relative of Edric Strayona. She argues that he was likely the cousin of those two powerful sons of Athelgar who submitted to William in early 1067. And that would have made him a very potent noble in the early conquest period. Now, Professor Williams' explanation for her theory is fascinating. And as is the case with history, it also mostly occurs in amazingly long footnotes. So I'm just going to give you the short version. Based on some comments by Orderic regarding familial links to the king, she believes that the two brothers were the product of a marriage between Athelgar and a daughter produced by Edric Strayona and Aildgith, the daughter of Athelred Unred. And the documents do seem to support this possibility, which means that these two land magnates from Shropshire, who had submitted to William in 1067 along with Edric the Wild, weren't just his cousins. They were also the blood relatives of Edward the Confessor, which was something that William was not and never would be. And in this chaotic and uncertain period, that is a big deal. And then something happens. Worcester tells us that Edric the Wild's lands were being repeatedly ravaged by the local sheriff, Richard Fitzscrop, who was leading the garrison of Hereford. So it looks like those sheriffs weren't wasting any time getting to the fun part of their new authority. But this Sheriff Fitzcrop is a murky figure. I'm sure you've noticed that his name is Norman. But actually, he first appears in our records during the reign of King Edward. He was appointed as a Shire Reeve during that period when Edward was locking horns with Godwin. And so it's possible that Fitzcrop was one of Edward's Norman allies that he was stacking the English administration with in his attempt to dislodge the House of Godwin. And Fitzcrop had then managed to keep the post ever since. And so if he had been brought over as an immigrant, he'd been in the country for at least 15 years by this point, working as a Shire Reeve. So he knew the land, he knew the people, and while, and while it does seem that he was Norman, even if he wasn't and the name was just a coincidence, he was at least a Norman collaborator and an eager supporter of William. So he was a perfect sheriff. And now, in spring of 1067, Hereford was under the purview of the Norman invader Fitzosborne. And you know how Fitzosborne and his men were behaving. In fact, things were so bad that the scribes of the Chronicle, Orderic Vitalis, and John of Worcester all took time to write about it. And now, they were attacking Edric the Wild's lands. Now, interestingly, Worcester tells us that the Normans were attacking Edric the Wild's lands because he was refusing to submit to William. But that contradicts the record from Orderic, who specifically mentions that Edric the Wild was among the nobles who appeared before William to submit to him. Furthermore, Worcester is the only one who claims that Edric the Wild refused to submit. The contemporary record makes no mention of a dispute over submission being the cause for the attacks. Honestly, it's more likely that Edric the Wild's estate 
was getting mangled because in 1067, Fitzosburn and his sheriffs were fucking up everybody's lands. They were basically making sure the English knew there was a new boss and they better not cross him. This appears to have been about power and wealth, and Sheriff Fitzcrop wanted to keep his job and get paid. At most, if there was a dispute over submission, it was probably something along the lines of there was a plot of land that Fitzcrop or one of his bosses wanted, and Edric refused to hand it over. Or maybe William ordered Fitzosborne to oust any relatives of King Edward from power before they started to get ideas. I don't know, but whatever the reason, Edric the Wild could not let this go on. His lands were under attack, and his people were suffering. And he was a lord of the marches. And the borderlands had always been a little different. Always a bit more rugged and independent. So Edric the Wild devised a plan. But none of our sources provide any real detail on what happens next. We just get little hints, bits of shadow. But what survives in the record suggests that Edric the Wild kicked up a guerrilla campaign against the Sheriff Fitzcrop. And it went fairly well, as we're told that the Normans, quote, lost many of their knights and squires, end quote, and that Edric and his fighters, quote, did much harm, end quote. I think the biggest hint of how he went about this can be found in the names of Edric himself, Edric Silvaticus. Edric Forrester and Edric the Wild all point to the woods and the wilderness. Given the nature of the land and how the Normans were trained to fight, it looks like Edric the Wild, like Alfred the Great, discovered just how effective it can be if you stopped fighting fair and started using the landscape to your favor. In all likelihood, those Norman knights, heavily armed and on horses, were finding themselves getting picked off piece by piece. And Edric the Wild doesn't appear to have stopped there. While he was fighting the Norman incursion on the field, he pitched a parallel political battle. Using diplomacy as his secret weapon, he reached out to the Welsh. It turns out that Edric had connections with the kings of Wales. In particular, King Blethyn of Powys and his brother, the King of Gwyneth. Again, we don't know the precise nature of this connection between these two brothers and Edric the Wild. But after the assassination of King Gruffith ap Llywelyn, King Edward, through Harold Godwinson, had installed these two brothers as kings. And if Professor Williams is right, and Edric the Wild and his cousins had links to King Edward, this might be the same link that opened some doors in Wales. But whatever it was, even if it was just the simple matter that they were kind of neighbors, the kings of Powys and Gwyneth were not about to look a gift horse in the mouth. This English lord was asking the Welsh to loot and attack an English town. You don't have to ask me twice. And so they suited up and began to march. Meanwhile, in Hereford, Sheriff Fitzgrub likely felt rather secure. After all, he had a newly constructed castle and a bunch of Norman knights to prance around it. So he must have felt more than a little surprised when a whole host of Welshmen came up over the horizon. And then, more than a little ticked off when he saw Edric the Wild and his forces were with them. 
and the new allies proceeded to loot and pillage the county of Hereford as far as the bridge on the River Lug. And it seems they did this with impunity, as they were able to return home to their lands with an enormous amount of booty. And digging through the records, it seems like the Normans looked at all of this and decided actually it would be best if they left this Edric the Wild character the hell alone, at least for the time being. They don't appear to have moved on him at all in the immediate aftermath of this. Now, this raid by Edric the Wild with the support of the Welsh kings is often interpreted as the first sign of open rebellion in England after William's coronation. But I'm not sure if that's entirely correct. Looking at the events that took place, there's a certain ideological element missing from Edric's raid that would elevate it from a raid to a rebellion against the new ruling elite. In particular, there was no apparent focus towards freeing the entire kingdom from William's rule or the Normans. Instead, this looks to me like a local affair which turned violent, which is something that's very common in feudal societies. Now, with hindsight, this event appears to fit within a broader pattern of resistance, but that's only because we know what happens next. But just like how modern revolutions begin spontaneously and in ways that can't be replicated because they're so full of contingencies, but then they appear inevitable when we're looking back after it's all over, well, I think that's the case here too. In early 1067, we're seeing violent flare-ups in reaction to the brutality of the new Norman occupiers. But they seem to be individual actions, not a broader movement with a national goal. But speaking of actions with a national goal, Edric wasn't the only Englishman who was reaching the end of his rope. And he wasn't the only one seeking support. The predations of Bishop Odo and Fitzosborne in particular were having quite an impact on the English people. And Orderic Vitalis tells us that some of the English went into exile to escape the Norman boot, and some of them went as far as Constantinople and joined the Varangian Guard. They were done with England. But others, he tells us, left England with the intent to return. You see, the towns and cities of England were more cosmopolitan than we might expect looking back. They housed people from all over the place, and the nobility of England had dynastic roots which reached lands far and wide. And many of those Englishmen had roots going back to Scandinavia. And actually, there was a man currently sitting on the throne of Denmark who had actually been born in England. And he was the nephew of Canute, and the cousin of Harold Godwinson. He was also a notoriously successful and victorious ruler. Not even Harold Hadrada could take this guy down. So this guy was ticking most of the boxes without even trying. And since William and his officers were making it very clear that the only thing that the Normans would bring to the English was suffering, well, some of the English decided that they might be better off if England became Denmark. It was time to talk to a king. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show and you'd like to sign up for membership to help us keep it going, just head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and click become a member. Thanks for listening.